0: Fistina Lente, which just means make haste slowly. So sometimes the fastest way to get somewhere is by slowing down a little bit. Slowing down a little bit, being balanced, uh, not rushing things, having some of that moderation is often the fastest way to get where where you want to go.
1: Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now sit back and enjoy the conversation. Ryan Holiday just might be the world's best-known promoter of Stoicism. He's authored around a dozen books with titles such as Ego is the Enemy, The Obstacle is the Way, and Courage is Calling. Ryan operates the Daily Stoic podcast and runs a bookstore in Austin, Texas, where he lives with his wife and their two sons. Ryan Holiday, thanks so much for appearing on the Good Life podcast today. Thanks for having me. So what got you into Stoicism? Who introduced you to the Stoics? So I was 19
0: years old and I was in college, uh, not reading the Stoics uh, because they're not uh, super popular with uh, academics. I was, I was just at this conference, I was a college journalist and I went, uh, I went to this little event. It was actually sponsored by a condom company uh, that, that was for college journalists. And the speaker was this guy named Dr. Drew, who I'd grown up listening to, he's a, a radio host. Uh, he did a show called Love Line. And uh, he was talking you know, about college stuff to kids. and uh, I went up to him after, and I just said, "You know I'm really into reading what books would you recommend?" And he said, "You know, I'm reading this Stoic philosopher named Epictetus right now that you might like." And I went back to my hotel room and I bought Epictetus and Marcus
1: Aurelius, and it, it changed my life. So there's these sort of big Stoic thinkers that people may have heard of, but I imagine most people, you know, even if they've um, sort of read a bit about Stoicism, would think of them as a block. But uh, tell us a little bit about the kind of uh, the big figures in Stoicism, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, and Epictetus.
0: Yeah, I mean even you you think about the Stoics like this is uh, elapsing over nearly 600 years. Uh, from, from the founding of Stoicism to Marcus Aurelius' reign, which is by no means the end of Stoicism, but it is sort of the end of the big Stoic thinkers. Uh, Zeno starts in Stoicism as the, as the founder. He's a, he's a merchant who loses everything in a shipwreck. Uh, and then that goes to Marcus Aurelius at the end, who's the emperor of Rome. And in between you have Seneca, who's a playwright and a political advisor. And you have Epictetus. So the big three people call Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus and Seneca. You have a slave, uh, uh, political advisor and uh, the emperor of Rome. Then there's Cato, who's a senator. You have all these sorts of interesting, pivotal Roman figures, Roman and Greek figures who were philosophers. Yes, but but they were also actual like doers. They 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 were engaged in public life at the highest levels uh in rome and to me that's what makes not just the stoics so interesting but but so relevant today because they weren't just you know white guys from a long time ago exploring intellectual ideas although they were doing that they were trying to solve the problems of life their experiences were the experiences not of academics but men and women of action.
1: So, I don't know whether it's because I'm a politician, but I find myself most drawn to Marcus Aurelius because he's writing about issues that he's directly wrestling with. I've always struggled a little bit with, uh, with Seneca uh, on, the, on the riches side. You know, he, uh, it, it's all very easy for Seneca to say, you should throw away your riches, but he's phenomenally rich. And in Ep- Epictetus, the sort of um, the mysticism I find uh, a little uh, distracting from the kind of kind of central messages. Uh, sure. How do each of them speak to you? What do you What do you take from each of the, each of those big figures? Uh,
0: Marcus Aurelius speaks to me for for the reasons you're talking about, but he, I think he also speaks to me because Meditations is perhaps the only philosophical book in perhaps the only book in the Western canon that was not at all written with an eye towards publication. It's a work of philosophy for oneself. When Mark, Marcus Aurelius, when he says-
1: It's got a kind of diary of Anne Frank feel about it, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, when he says, when you have trouble getting out of bed in the morning, you know, here's how you should think about it. He doesn't mean you as in you and me, although it does speak to you and I, he literally means him. He doesn't wanna get out from under the warm covers, right? And And so there's a, an immense authenticity and accessibility to meditations that speaks to me i mean you have a guy talking about losing his temper and you have a guy talking about dealing with urges and you have a guy dealing with depression and grief and pain and and and, and all of these very human emotions um as well as power and success and fame and, you know, he's just working his way through that. I mean, Seneca, on the one hand, is is kind of not accessible in the sense that he was very wealthy. And, you know, he also worked for Nero, so not exactly the most uh, stand up of, of political advisors either. But there's something to me about Seneca's letters where you have a guy writing notes to his friend who seems to be struggling and there is a real accessibility and practicality to those letters, which I love as well. And he talks about how do you deal with all the demands on your time? How do you deal with getting old? How do you deal with fear? How do you deal with the desire to travel, to just get away from it all, right? And so again, just the Stoics are just constantly returning to these very down to earth relatable ideas and uh i think that's just what makes them so different than all the other philosophers
1: so you've written these uh, four books at uh, at age at age 34 you've written uh, four books on uh, on stoicism alone our uh, obstacle is the way ego is the enemy stillness is the key and courage is calling uh there's four big stoic virtues that uh, people talk about wisdom justice temperance and courage uh tell us about each of those virtues and and how your four books about stoicism map onto them
0: well it's uh now that i heard you say that actually I, I i wrote two other books about stoicism i wrote a book called lives of the stoics which is a biography of the different stoics and then i also wrote the daily stoic which is one page of stoic philosophy a day and then i'm in the middle now of writing a book as you said a series of books as you said on the four stoic virtues courage temperance justice wisdom i've written the courage book so that's done i turned in the temperance book on monday and then probably around june i will start working on the justice book i'm researching it now um so that's been the last two years of my life and the next two years will be the other two books but when when i write about the stoics what i'm usually trying to do is take a person or a stoic idea like for the obstacle is the way it was well how do we deal with the difficulties of life The, the 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 rocks that get rolled in our path. How do we overcome adversity? My book, he goes, the enemy is about, you know, how you deal with that sort of inner inner battle, uh, the inner obstacles. And then, you know, stillness is about where I happen to see stoicism and Buddhism connecting with each other. So usually I just take one thing that kind of is really I'm dealing with in my own life, uh, that, that that I've read a lot about as well. And I try to merge the stoic thinking with stories, examples, ideas that kind of bring the ideas in the book uh, home to people in a way they can actually use or apply. Uh,
1: let's go to a couple of uh, sort of favorite stories in there. In, uh, in, in Obstacle, uh, Obstacle is the Way, uh, What uh, do you have a favorite tale that you think epitomizes the uh, sense in which an obstacle can be, uh, can be turned into a path forward?
0: Well, I was actually just thinking about this with Marcus Aurelius specifically, I'm doing a talk about him tomorrow. And um, one of the ancient historians, Cassius Dio says, you know, uh, Marcus Aurelius does not meet with the good fortune that he deserved. Right. He said almost not only did Marcus Aurelius have bad health, but almost the entirety of his reign was beset by troubles. Uh, There was a flood. There was an invasion. And then there was this little thing called the Antonine Plague, uh, which ravaged Rome, not for one year or two years like COVID, but for 15 years and killed million uh, killed like 10% of the Roman population. Just like a devastating, uh, enormous plague that, that was even, you know, would make COVID look like a walk in the park. So, um, but anyways, Cassius Dio is saying this and, and he says, but... He says, it made me admire Marcus Aurelius all the more because he never lost command of himself, he says, and because uh, he never lost command of the empire either. Meaning that that he basically because of Marcus Aurelius's difficulties, he became the Marcus Aurelius that we know and admire that he used this just as Marcus Aurelius says the obstacle is the way Um So so he actually lived that idea in in the midst of the adversity that he faced. My favorite story of Marx is actually at the depths of the Antonine Plague as Rome's treasury is depleted. He leads a two month sale of the imperial uh, treasures. He sells off the palace jewels. He sells off their furniture. He sells off his wife's robes, their perfumes.
1: uh,
0: And he does this because. Everyone else was suffering. Why should he need all this stuff? Uh, you know, when, when other people could could you know benefit from from the money and and to me that's just a great example. It's like everything fell apart, and what Marcus did was step up. And to me, that's what the idea of the obstacles away means.
1: To go to the uh, the value of uh, courage, I think this is one of the hardest for those who are living in a, a safe modern community. You know, unless you sign up for the military, you uh, you're you're relatively unlikely to be putting your body in danger. Uh, but how do the Stoics see courage, and uh, and how are there particular stories of people who've uh, executed moral courage that you find particularly speak to you.
0: Well, that distinction that you just made is a really important one. There's physical courage and moral courage, and it'd be wonderful if uh, everyone who had physical courage had moral courage, and everyone who had moral courage had physical courage. But unfortunately, they're often uh, not correlated, and and. And yet both are very rare. So physical courage is running into battlefields. It's also running into a burning building to save someone. It's also a frontline worker in the middle of a pandemic, right? It's putting your physical body at risk. Um, Moral courage though would be, I was thinking about this uh, as well. There's a a woman named uh, Catalin Carrico, who is the, uh, she worked for 30 years, basically in the bowels of academia on this line of research that everyone thought was fruitless. Uh, she never made more than 60,000 US a year. Uh, she constantly had to reapply for her own job. But previously, she came to America having escaped communism in Hungary with $900 stuffed in her daughter's uh, teddy bear. And if, if this name is sounding familiar at all, it's because Dr. Kariko would go on to be one of the primary contributors to the mRNA research that's now given us the, the 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 vaccines that have saved you know hundreds of millions of lives all over the world moral courage is sticking to it right moral courage is persevering down a line of inquiry that everyone is criticizing or looking down upon it's you know be, avoiding the spotlight cuz there's something important that you want to do um it's it's being laughed at it's being criticized uh it's doing the right thing cuz you think it's the right thing so so moral courage to me is is uh is is arguably more important and unfortunately rare i mean we see this in american politics all the time someone will be a military leader who enters politics and then turn out to be a complete coward they're afraid to tell the truth They're, you know, they're afraid to lose their job. They're afraid to risk, you know, criticism or or controversy as a politician. This is a person who could run fearlessly into battle, had no problem being shot at, uh, but, you know, doesn't want uh, doesn't want anyone to angrily tweet at them. Right. And so moral courage to me is is uh, the thing we need most these days.
1: You mentioned uh, in a conversation I was listening to uh, that you'd been looking to try and publish something on the question of moral courage surrounding people who uh, won't take the COVID vaccine. Uh, you and I both totally believe in the science. You and I both uh, both think that that is a uh, decision which endangers uh, health, but yet you've got some views about how we ought to think about the moral courage uh, of, uh, of vaccine deniers. Uh, do you wanna share your thoughts on that well, very, I, I hope this sure. is a topic that makes you as uncomfortable to answer as it does me to ask the question.
0: Well, I'll give you an example. So there's a, a basketball star in the United States, Kyrie Irving, he plays for the Brooklyn Nets. He's 97% of the NBA has been vaccinated and he's refused. Uh, and uh, he's refused even though it's cost him now millions of dollars. Um, he can't play home games in, in, uh, the, in, in New York City, in Brooklyn, uh, which, which just tore apart the team. James Harden, who's his teammate, has to be traded. Um, and so Kyrie Irving is clearly willing to sacrifice for his beliefs. Kyrie Irving is clearly willing to be criticized, attacked for his beliefs, you know, willing to be the 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 lone voice amongst, you know, the the overwhelming majority. Unfortunately, in America, it's not such a lone voice. Right. It's uh, the 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 minority in America is is uh, unfortunately a pretty sizable block. Um, so it's, it's not exactly the only one. But you know, he he is, uh, let's say even amongst his peers, right? He is willing to stand alone. So this brings up an interesting question. Is this courage, right? Is that courage? Now you might say that it's, it's, uh, there's a certain fearlessness to it, right? But is that what courage is? And I would argue that courage as a virtue, courage in the virtue sense, it's very difficult to separate courage from the outcome, from the cause. Uh, there's a Lord Byron poem. He says, "Tis the cause makes all that hallows or degrades courage in its fall." So, to me, the question is, you know, are you standing for something good, or in this case, are you standing for your right to uh, inflict uh, your fellow uh, teammates and citizens with a deadly virus that's killed, you know, at this point nearly a million of your fellow countrymen. You know, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's hard to draw a clear line as to what counts as courage and what doesn't. Uh, but, you know, uh, I, I, would, I would argue that, uh, you know, courage in pursuit of something that is intellectually incorrect, that's based on misinformation or disinformation, or something that externalizes the consequences of your actions onto other innocent people, um, Is probably not what the ancients meant by uh, courage as a virtue, and certainly Marcus Aurelius, who, who many suspect died of the plague, would uh, would would maybe have a very specific opinion about people who refuse to take bu- basic public health measures.
1: Yes it it feels to me a little bit like the way in which I, I look at uh, Japanese kamikaze pilots. Yes. Uh, you know, I can I can I can see the courage in their uh, in their eyes, but I in the end can't respect the entirety of, uh, of 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 what they're doing.
0: Well, after after 9/11, Bill Maher, the comedian, lost a television show because on politically incorrect, he had a discussion about whether the 9/11 hijackers were courageous. And, you know, it is an interesting discussion and, and in retrospect, the, the sort of, it seemed like we were kind of punishing the wrong person there, right? Uh, we're punishing the guy talking about it, uh, which of course, uh, you know, he didn't do it. Um, but, but it is an interesting question because is it courageous to crash a, a plane into a, a building or a battleship in pursuit of a goal? You know, you could argue, again, there's a certain fearlessness there, but is it perhaps that these the Fundamentalism, the certainty which is rooted in ignorance or you know uh, brainwashing or whatever gets a person to that place, is it actually not that courageous because they have no doubt, right? It maybe maybe it's actually the doubt, the fear, and pushing past the doubt in the fear uh, to do a thing uh, that that uh, you know there's a certain amount of risk to um makes it risky uh, make, makes it impressive again like they know they're not going to walk away from the plane right like they, they they know this is the end of it so in it's almost you know you could you get into a trick. is suicide itself brave right you're leaping into the unknown but also you're not leaping into the unknown because it's the end of it right and so there's you could you i think you could also make an intellectual argument that it is it's cowardice embodied right because you are you are essentially leaving the consequences of your actions to everyone
1: but you. Let's go to something which is uh, a little easier to uh, to tackle: the notion of stillness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've uh, you you write in stillness, and the key is the key uh, about a number of uh, important leaders who have uh, employed stillness, particularly uh, Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, but you've also written uh, uh, more expansively about the way in which you you've looked to build stillness into your life. Do you want to talk a little bit about nature, exercise, and making, and uh, how they can bring stillness? I just found that almost all the moments
0: of my life that mean anything to me, whether it's, you know, some sort of creative breakthrough that I had or it's time with my family, whether it's, you know, some beautiful memory of, of at the core of it was a kind of stillness, a quietness, a focus, uh, connectedness, uh, an essentialness to that. Um, and uh, so I, I try to cultivate I, I try to design my life and my days around making that that possible. You know, last night, uh, I worked out of my driveway under the stars. I, this morning, I got up early, I took my kids for a walk, we watched the sun come up, we counted some deer that were running by, you know, I spent some time with my journal, I didn't touch my phone for the first hour or so that I was awake. And then I came to my office here and I, I wrote, you know, sort of without much in the way of interruption until I'd done what I needed to do creatively for the day. And then, of course, you know, life is a a life of complete stillness is impossible for anyone who is not a monk, uh, who has responsibilities. Um, But but, you know, that that only then after I'd accomplished that, did I, you know, check the phone, did I make some phone calls, did I read some
1: paperwork? You know, the, the, the stuff that sort of not exactly stillness. Have you looked to uh, to do more sort of craft and making? You're uh, you're you're on a bit of acreage outside Austin, I understand. Yeah, I live I live on a, a
0: little ranch uh, out here, and uh, I mean I, there there is something to physical labor that I that I do quite enjoy. Um, having two young kids, I, I've I've struggled or wrestled with, you know, it might be wonderfully therapeutic for me to go out and fix this fence myself. Um, is that the best use of my time? You know, I, I find some tension there, especially as a, as my books have done well and I've got a, a number of other responsibilities. I don't have, you know, the time to do some of the things, some some of the sort of meditative practices that I'd like as much as I, you know, I have I have it different phases in my life, but I do find sort of being active, being outside, being in nature, being. Intensely focused on what you're doing is, is the, the way to be, though.
1: As they get older, it'll become easier for you. I certainly find making things with my boys is, uh, is one of life's true delights. Um, are there other ways in which you've looked to build stillness into your, into your day to, uh, to carve out that thinking time that I know so many of us wrestle with? I spoke to Cal Newport, Newport on the podcast about so uh, his his views on email and social social media and banishing those technologies. Uh, are there the things that you've looked to?
0: It's a tension for me, uh, and I've talked to Cal about this myself. Is is like uh, social media is also the means by which I reach people with the ideas that I talk about, and so you know, there's a tension between what might produce the most personal stillness for me, and then what allows me to. Get the ideas that I think are important out in the world, but I, I do try to delegate that stuff as much as possible and create as much insulation from those things as possible. Um, I also, uh, to me, the, the the number one way to have stillness in your life is is by saying no to things. Right? I think we say yes to so many things. There's a great passage in Meditations where Marcus goes. There's two actually. My favorite one is he says, "Are you afraid of death because you won't be able to do this anymore?" Like whatever that is, you know, you're you're afraid of death because you uh, won't have to sit in the you know the DMV again. Uh, you know, you're afraid of death because you you like doing your taxes so much, right? You know, you're you're afraid of death because you really love sitting in traffic. No, of course not. Um, so just how much of the crap that we do in life that we don't actually need to do and don't enjoy doing is really sometimes important to remember. But he says, look. With everything you do and say, he says, you have to ask yourself, is this essential? And if it's not essential, by eliminating it, not only did you stop doing something that you should, didn't need to do, but you then get the double benefit of doing the essential things better. And so like my calendar had two things on it today, right? That's it. And my calendar tomorrow has, uh, I can look, my calendar tomorrow has uh, one thing on it. I'm giving a talk from 12.50 to 2 p.m. That's the only thing I'm scheduled to do tomorrow. Um, That doesn't mean it's the only thing I'm going to do tomorrow. It just means all that time, all the working time I have tomorrow, with the exception of one hour, is for me. I'm in charge. I didn't sign up for a bunch of stuff. I didn't agree to do a bunch of stuff. I'm in control, which is really, I think, where you want to be.
1: So uh, your latest book you said was on temperance. It seems like the most un-Ryan Holiday uh, virtue uh, as somebody who is extraordinarily intense, you know, a dozen or so books by age 34, uh, a whole lot of uh, uh, high-powered roles, New York Times bestseller list, and the like, um, how do you, how do you think about, uh, temperance or, or moderation is sometimes characterized?
0: Yeah, the book's going to be more about self-discipline than, than that sort of traditional definition of temperance. But I, I have to be self-disciplined about my self-discipline, right? Like I could, you know, I know it, that that sounds like a lot of books and it was, um, there's definitely an alternate universe in which I was more productive, uh, in which I did even more, uh. Now, would that be sustainable productivity? Would that have come at a personal or health cost? Yes. So, you know, it's obviously about figuring out what you're capable of doing, where your limits are. And then and then, you know, when you are driven or ambitious being balanced with that. There, one of the, um, the, the, the ancient emperors, that actually the first emperor of Rome, Augustus, uh, when, when he was uh, younger, his name was Octavian, and uh, he was actually tutored by two different Stoic teachers that I write about in Lives of the Stoics. One of the pieces of advice he gets from them, I think it's a, a piece of advice I think of lately is, is encapsulated in a Latin expression, festina lente, which just means make haste slowly. So sometimes the fastest way to get somewhere is by slowing down a little bit, right? Um, In the military, they say slow is smooth and smooth is fast. You know, slowing down a little bit, being balanced, uh, not rushing things, having some of that moderation is often the fastest way to get where, where you wanna go.
1: Yeah, I'm often struck by uh, my former uh, profession of academia. A lot of the most productive academics were not those who would finish things in a flurry for the deadline, but those who would often get their material in early and Mm -hmm. then just move on to the next project and uh, they're relentless. Do you have uh, a word target in your writing? A word target? Like a a daily word target? Yeah. No, I I think
0: about it more as what do I have to write today? So I break all my books down into smaller pieces. And then I'm just working on that small piece until it's done. So I I think less about like, is it a thousand words or two thousand words or 500 words and think more about today? I'm working on this section and I hope to make as much progress as possible. Um, There's a great writing rule I love with just a couple crappy pages a day. Like if you're just making some forward progress every day, eventually you'll get there. The problem is a lot of people say that they're writing a book, but if you actually like filmed them, you notice they spend very little time sitting down and writing.
1: So you must have challenged too because you've created a bit of a sort of stoicism machine around you. Uh, I've, got, I've got here on my, di- on my desk one of your mentor-tory oh, coins. Yeah. Uh, you've, uh, you've, you've produced all kinds of leather-bound editions. You've got your own bookstore. Uh, you've got daily stoic, which presumably means uh, on a daily basis or at least every few days you've got to be producing content. Uh, are you finding that that machine is cutting into your uh, core writing time?
0: No, this goes to what we are talking about earlier, sort of delegating or building systems around you. Um, I wake up every day and I write because that's the driving engine of all of that stuff. If I don't write books that are at the standard to which I write books, not only am I not creatively fulfilled, but the whole thing falls apart. It all breaks Everything I do comes from that. So you have to know what the main thing is, right? Um, the, um, the GM of the Los Angeles Rams, who just won a Super Bowl on Sunday, uh, he told me, uh, he's a student of stoicism, and he said, the main thing is to always keep the main thing the main thing. And I love that expression. So what is what is the main <laughs> it's thing? It's kind got of a Yogi like, bear affair that I feel yeah, about it. W- w- what is it that you do, right? Like, what is the main thing that you do? Because um, it's really easy to get caught up in all these other things or to do other people's jobs or, you know, uh, to do the fun things. The main thing for me is writing. Everything comes from there. And then I just try to schedule the other stuff in blocks. You know, I write a certain number of Daily Stoic emails during the week. I, you know, shoot a couple of videos. I try to use the, the little in-between moments to, to do stuff here or there. But most of the things that I accept or choose to do, I do only if I know that
1: they won't impede on the main thing. So in terms of the craft of writing, you came to it in, a, in an almost old-fashioned kind of way. As yeah. with a, I think of your time with Robert Greene as being a, a bit of a, an apprentice kind of, kind of relationship there. Uh, how valuable did you find that? And, and to what extent do you recommend that to other people looking to become writers?
0: I mean, I don't think I could possibly put a valuation on it because it was essentially priceless. I mean, it was, the th- it was the thing that made me. You know, uh, he taught me not just how to think, but how to how to like actually make a book. Like what? How does it actually the like from a craftsmanship perspective, not just how to have an idea, but then how to make that idea into a real book? You know.
1: It was worth dropping out of university for.
0: Uh, Of course. I mean, that was that was my real education. That was my that was my grad school.
1: So I think we've got to talk about gender because, uh, you, you know, the, the Stoic thinkers we've talked about are all blokes. Um, early on in your Stoic uh, books, your stories are mostly men, although I noticed that that's changing in, in, in recent times. Um, and uh, you've kind of, your, your early mentors, um, particularly Tucker Max is from a kind of uh, a strand of, uh, well, I suppose you'd call toxic masculinity. Sure. Um, so, how have your thinking, how's your thinking on gender evolved? What do you think Stoicism has to say to women, and and is there a kind of uh, overly masculine side to Stoicism that's that you've you've reflected on?
0: I think those are two separate questions, which I'm, I'm happy to address both of them. The the, the role of uh, sort of the male-dominated view of Stoicism is, I think, one, a reflection of the fact that the ancient world was inherently a patriarchy and there wasn't, uh, you know, it's not that there weren't Stoic women in history, it's that Stoic women throughout history were deprived of their voice. Now, there were a few of them in, in Lives of the Stoics. I, I talk about Portia Cato, who's Cato's daughter, Musonius Rufus, uh, who's, who's Epictetus's philosophy teacher, is like, stunningly progressive in the ancient world and and controversial for it at that for saying that men and women should both be taught philosophy so there's nothing like inherently male uh there's nothing uh that 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 says like women can't be interested in stoic philosophy just in the ancient world women were sort of cut out of certain things and and you do have to compensate for that as you tell stories and and i part of the reason i tell modern stories in a lot of my books is that i want to I want to uh, be able to highlight people that that were if not uh, intentionally stoic at least exhibiting stoic traits uh, in 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 the books and if you only focus on the old dead white guys from history you you can't do that um, and one of the things Robert taught me was he's like look you it's not just that diversity is morally important but as a creator if your book is only, attractive to a certain subset of the population, that's like a bad business decision, right? And so he's like, all cultures, all genders, all ethnicities, all backgrounds should be in the book. So that that's a journey that I've been on. And uh, I, I think it's always something I've been intentional about, but I, I do think I've gotten better at it as I've gone. Um, and and it's something I've looked for more um, uh, in, in, in each of the books. Now my own history, uh, I've had a, the unique experience of having worked for some controversial, provocative figures, Tucker being one, I was the director of marketing at a company called American Apparel. Um, but both, one sort of connects towards the end of the Me Too movement, and another one is sort of predates it a little bit. But it always was kind of a surreal experience for me because I, I never I never quite understood that. Um, uh, I've I've always I've been with my wife for 15 years now. We met when I was 19 years old. Uh, I'm not someone who parties. I'm not someone who uh, you know. I'm not someone who's interested in 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 uh, you know these these sort of uh, lifestyles that I think have gotten people in trouble. Uh, and so it's it's kind of been it's it's been a a strange experience for me because it seems. It's so inexplicable to me that one would use one's power to mistreat someone or that one would, you know, uh, treat uh, people as less than or not as good as um, so. So I, it's it's obviously been something I've how, how did I keep finding myself in these different work uh, in these different environments? I don't have a good answer for it, uh, but it, but it, it, it's it's something I've certainly been puzzled by uh in my own life
1: there's nothing really stoic about defacing a tucker max billboard uh so that you can provoke a feminist backlash and sell more of his books is that? yes
0: no there there, there there isn't and you know my first book was wrestling with well just because one's profession calls for certain things or just because incentives are are aligned in a certain way, or just because one could be very well paid to do a certain thing, is that really what one should be spending their life doing? And I, I saw that book as, as, and it was—it's been interpreted different ways by different people. And I mean, it's—it's it's now coming up on its ten-year anniversary, so I've seen it kind of go in different waves. But um, that book for me was always supposed to be the end of a chapter of my life, and so sometimes it's interesting when you write a book and you this is
1: trust me—I'm lying. You're talking yeah.
0: about. When you publish a book, you know when it comes out. That's people's first interaction with you, even though you've moved on from that thing, and that's why you wrote the book about it. Um, so, so I, I have a strange relationship with that book.
1: Do you have regrets about uh, that fa- phase of your life?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, regrets are uh, regret is a hard word um, in in that. Uh, I think it's impossible, obviously, to learn from things in some cases without having done them, and I wouldn't be here without the collection of those experiences. Um, I say at the beginning of of, uh, of trust me, I'm lying that I was disintegrated, right? Like we think disintegrated means falls apart, but but disintegrated also means not integrated, right? And and so there was a part of me. Like, obviously, I, I'd i been introduced to stoicism. I was writing about stoicism. I was reading about stoicism. And then when I look at, like, my day-to-day life, it was so different than those ideas. And that that lack of integration is obviously something that baffles me a bit more in retrospect and um, something I've wrestled with and, you know, tried to become more integrated as I've matured and gotten older and had, had more experiences. But, yeah, there's... There, I think I think I think back to that period and I just sort of go, not just um, who were these people that I was working for, but who was I and what 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 brought us together and and uh, what do you learn from that? Do you believe in free will? Well, the Stoics would say that that were these dogs tied to a cart. They talked about the logos, the logos being sort of the rhythm of the universe. That we're like a dog tied to the cart. The cart is the logos. And that we have some freedom, you know, here or there. Um, but at the end of the day, we're not fully in control. I'm, I'm probably somewhere close to that. So, so yeah, the, the universe where I didn't end up working for those people, I never had those experiences, um, you know, I would be in a very different place now. And so I, I think there is a part of me that just... You know, it's like, hey, this is how it's shaking out. What matters is, do you learn from it? Do you grow from it? What changes do you make uh, because of it? I think you can, you know, you don't have total control, but you have some control is maybe how I think about it.
1: Drawing you back to that uh, theme of being disintegrated, uh, do you wanna talk a bit to the uh, success of Iron Maiden and uh, whether there's uh, anything that they teach us about success?
0: Well, Iron Maiden's my favorite uh, my favorite heavy metal band, also sort of my model as, uh, as for, for an artistic career. Actually, Bruce Dickinson, the lead singer of Iron Maiden is in Austin for a, like a spoken word tour that he's doing next week that I think I'm gonna go to. Um, you know, Iron Maiden has sold a hundred million albums uh, in fifty years, which is just incredible to think about. Considering they've basically never been popular, never been on the radio, and they write you know eleven-minute songs about Alexander the Great and uh, poems like uh, uh, the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Right? It's like an absurd band in, in some respects. And yet they've had this enormous impact because they sort of carved out a niche. They care about only that niche. They do what they do extremely well, and they don't care if it's on trend or not. They have a platform and they speak to that platform and that's their universe. And, and I, I do hope that I'm building something at a smaller scale than that, um, that, that stands the test of time and, and you know, builds a community or, a, you know, a, a group.
1: So, I wanted to ask you too about uh, your book on uh, Peter Thiel bringing down Gorka. yeah, uh, and the fascinating observation that you make in that book uh, about the fact that when you went to their apartments, Nick Denton, the founder of Gorka, had Seneca on his bookshelf, whereas Peter Thiel had Machiavelli. Uh, how do you uh, how, how, how do you think about these two fi- the, these two figures uh, you know, you're clearly in the end kind of uh, sympathize more with teal and Denton uh, but uh, but how did the uh, how did the stoic lose well the
0: interesting thing about that book is is I how much I ended up liking both of them uh Nick Denton being the founder of Cocker Peter teal being the billionaire that destroyed it um it was just a, a surreal experience like on every level and i I enjoyed it so much the weird thing I don't think I would have expected is that I think I connected with Nick more on the human level and Peter Thiel more on the strategic level. And I might have thought that would have been exactly flipped. Um, You know, Thiel, I'm just fascinated with. I don't agree with everything that he did. I I certainly agree with him less now than I did then, as he went on to be a prominent Trump backer and now is is backing a a number of very reactionary extreme figures in in U.S. politics. but I was impressed by the competence of it all. I, you know, I feel like in a time of extreme incompetence and ineffectiveness, there was something remarkable about someone setting out to do a thing that no one thought was possible, and then pulling it off without anyone noticing. I and mean, you know, there's something. Again, you can be appalled by it, and also impressed by it. I certainly sometimes I feel this about like uh, things that like uh, it. Israeli agents do, like, uh, uh, you know, like they'll assassinate a world leader or they'll they'll destroy, you know, some something in Iran or something. They just pull off these things that you're like, I'm not really sure you're supposed to do that. But like, holy shit, that's pretty cool that you did it. You know, there's a certain
1: aspect of that to Peter Thiel that I feel. But that does go to the central difference between Machiavelli and the Stoics, doesn't it? I mean, Machiavelli is is all about uh, tactics and strategies, regardless of the end. Whereas the Stoics, very much, you know, as our conversation before beforehand about courage highlighted, the Stoics are very much about the ends as being critical.
0: But I, I think you need both, right? I mean, obviously, you need your leaders to have a moral compass, uh, and and the ends can't justify all means, and yet. You know the argument against Cato as a politician would be that he was not very effective, right? That he was so morally pure uh, and so unwilling to compromise that he brings about the end of the Roman Republic just as much as Caesar does, right? Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm of two minds of this, and I could argue it both ways with equal sincerity, but. But, you know, there's a line in meditations where Marcus really says don't go around expecting Plato's Republic. Uh, you know, you, you don't live in Plato's Republic, you live in the real world. And 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 I was telling you about Octavian earlier. So Octavian takes uh, takes power after Rome's Second Civil War. Um, he's, he's the emperor of Rome. There's a slight problem, which is that Caesar uh, likely had a male heir with Cleopatra named Caesarion uh, who lived in Egypt. Uh, and Athenodorus and Arius, um, his two stoic advisors, uh, they go, you can't have too many Caesars, you know like you can't have two rival heirs to the throne. It doesn't work that way um, and 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 Octavian has him murdered. Now this is obviously uh, unjust and cruel uh, and unsavory and at the same time, you know, should Rome have been plunged into a third civil war uh, because he didn't want to do that? Right. Like, you know, it, it's Machiavelli. Machiavelli focuses on those questions, right? The Stoics focus on the, the higher elevated questions of meaning and purpose and virtue. But but when you're running the world. You know what do you do, I, I, and so I'm not saying they can be uh, integrated with each other. I'm just saying that uh, it's it's tricky.
1: That was a stronger defense of Machiavelli than I expected. Uh, you, like me, Ryan, are uh, an introvert uh, playing an extrovert's uh, o- occupation. Yeah. Uh, what advice do you have for people who consider themselves fundamentally introverted? but would like to have an impact on the world and look around and and see sort of extroverts who they regard as basically pretenders, but who really don't want to go through the, the, you know, the the, the almost physical pain of putting themselves out there.
0: In the US, there's a rule for it, I forget what it's called, but it's basically embodied in the example of Eisenhower that we need, for instance, more politicians who don't want to be politicians, who don't like politics, right? And I would say that, you know, Precisely the fact that you don't want it, that you would rather be quietly, reflectively thinking about things by yourself is why we need you. You know, I think the problem with the introvert extrovert distinction or or whatever is that we end up deferring a lot of things to the extroverts um, because they want it more than we do, even if they're not more qualified for it. Uh, than we do. And in, in some cases, perhaps are are disqualified precisely by how badly they want to need it, you know? So you, you got to put yourself out there. Look, as a writer, of course, I would, I would love not to be doing this interview. I would love never to have to get on stage and talk to people. Like the, the irony of being a writer is that you became a writer because you like to sit quietly alone in a room and think about ideas as text. And then you succeed at it and they go, we would like to pay you a lot of money to come do the opposite of that. you know? Uh, I just I just gave a talk to a group of people in Miami. Uh, and it's like I was just thinking, this is the ex- the exact opposite of like I had to leave my house, go to go to Miami, which is like another universe and and get up and talk about these ideas in a compelling, extroverted way. It's so different. But if I don't do it, it's not like some different stoic, uh, stoic enthusiast or writer is going to take my place. Do you know what I mean? There's, the, there's not. Uh, if someone else could do it better than me, I would gladly defer to them.
1: Ryan, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Uh,
0: teenage self? I don't know what I'd give my teenage self. A little older, I'd just say, relax. You're taking whatever it is way too seriously. I was just too intense about things. And that's probably why I ended up in some of the messes that I was in. I was just too focused on winning and not enough, not focused enough on asking myself whether it was even a game worth playing.
1: What's something you used to believe, but no longer do?
0: That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think COVID has strained some of my faith in certainly people I know and am slash was friends with, but just even my understanding of the the social contract. Do you know what I mean? Like, what do you do when people, it's strange enough when people won't do something that's in their obvious self-interest, right? And what do you do when they also won't do it when it would be utterly painless and costless to them but be demonstrably beneficial to the entire world and they just can't they can't do it and not only can they not do it but they can as you're we talking about with Ty- Kyrie irving contort themselves into a position where they think it's actually heroic that they won't do it right um it's been it's been baffling and it, there's a there's a passage in meditations that i of course read many times where he says look there's two types of plagues there's a plague that can take your life and he's like there's a plague that can destroy your character and it was only in the pandemic that i came to understand what Marcus was actually referring to there
1: when i asked you about loss of belief i was half expecting you might talk about uh religion you're uh, you're an atheist i understand is have you been that way all your life i don't know if i would categorize myself as an atheist i think I grew up uh, Catholic,
0: and then we sort of transitioned to a more, as a lot of Americans now do, to a sort of even non-denominational evangelical evangelicalism. What is it? evangelical? Whatever. Uh, just like basically white people Christianity in the United States, um, which I uh, found increasingly shallow and meaningless, especially as as I went to college and then sort of went through the. Uh, young male atheist phase of Richard Dawkins and and all these other other writers. I'd I'd probably categorize myself as more agnostic today. I certainly don't think that there is a God or that I have a clear conception of who God is, but I am no longer remotely so um, presumptuous as to say that I definitely know that there isn't. I mean, I'm very sure... I'm very sure that it's not the God that a lot of people think that it is. You know what I mean? It's like, I can safely say you're obviously wrong or you're at least doing it wrong, but I don't know what the answer is.
1: When are you most happy?
0: With my kids uh, on that morning walk or with my wife, you know, on the couch in the evening. Um, and then when
1: I'm, when I'm writing. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy?
0: F- physical, some form of strenuous physical exercise every day mostly running running uh biking swimming i, I haven't swum as much as i i'd like to um if i lived in australia i would swim every single day i think that's probably the, the 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 those rock pools i think are one of the seven wonders of the earth uh but we don't we don't we have we have something called barton springs here in austin which is pretty incredible uh it's like a basically a rock pool, but it's a natural spring, uh, but just nothing quite like the ocean, and I don't live anywhere near the ocean.
1: Yeah, I'm training for a half Ironman that's just next, next weekend, and the uh, swim is, uh, is in the ocean at Huskisson, where mm. you can just see right down to the bottom. You can see the fish sweat, fish below you. It's that's the incredible. most glorious course to, uh, to do. Uh, do you have any guilty pleasures?
0: Uh, crappy TV, you know, like reruns of The Office or Parks and Recreation or Law and Order. I, I, I like just procedural, you know, signed, I like to watch Seinfeld a thousand times. You know, I like to watch the same hilarious sitcoms over and
1: over again. Seinfeld rather than Friends, right?
0: Yeah. Friends is garbage.
1: And uh, that goes to your point before about timelessness. So uh, I've, uh, I've I've heard yes. heard you make, make this uh, this observation that uh, Seinfeld Seinfeld will endure in a way that, uh, that that Friends just wasn't designed to.
0: I think so. Although Friends is having a huge Gen Z resurgence uh, here in the United States because of some of the streaming platforms. So, uh, but I, but yes, in the long in the long run, what is better art? I mean, Friends is garbage.
1: And finally, Ryan, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Ooh, what person? I mean, I think this,
0: the Stoics have, have certainly changed uh, me in, in, in so many different ways. Uh, so I guess I'd probably, I'd probably just put the, put the Stoics in, in general. Um, I don't know if there's a specific person I'd credit, though.
1: Ryan Holiday, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on The Good Life podcast today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in conversation. If you like this episode, please tell a friend or mention it on social media. It really helps others find the podcast. If you like this episode, I reckon you might also enjoy my chats with Martha Nussbaum and Massimo Piliucci, both of which touched on Stoicism. Next week we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.